Welcome to the Gospel Goodness Podcast. We are back with part three with uh, our good friend Dan Patterson. It's great to be back again. Yeah, we, we're doing it all in one day, but we're <laughs> back. Like we're gone and we're back. Um, and we've been chatting the last you know, part two. This is part three. Part two was we talked about uh, you know, is, is the Bible true? Is God true? Is Jesus true? We talked about the goodness of God. So if you haven't listened to part two or part one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to them, especially for the context of our whole conversation. It's uh, quite important, I would think. And uh, now we're going to just jump in uh, and, and we're going to chat about some some fun topics like hell. We're going to talk about uh, cessationism, the gifts of the Spirit. Did they die with the apostles? Um, if you know me at all, you'll clearly know that I don't think that, um, but we'll see what Dan thinks in a minute. And then we're going to talk about Dan has a book coming out. Um, which I'd love to him to share about. So before we do that, uh, we're just going to jump into a quick commercial and then we're going to talk to Dan. Dan, let's talk hell. Um, I, I wanted to ask about hell for a couple of reasons. One, based on our conversation, the goodness of God. How does a good God, you know, why would he send people to hell? Um, my, my personal conviction is based on John 3, 16 through like 19, that God isn't sending people to hell, but in fact, they're, because they don't believe, they're already going there. So God sent Jesus to give them a way out, um, you know, based on they, those who don't believe are already condemned because they have not believed, um, and Jesus came to save them. Um, and, and also just around hell, I mean, there's a big doctrine that maybe some of the listeners are aware of or they might not be aware of. It's called universalism. And eventually, uh, I'm sorry, basically, and you can probably share more about this, but basically that um, God's grace is so deep that there will always be a way, even after death, that they can come back to the Father. And uh, and it sounds good and some kind of makes you want that to be true, but is it? Um, and so let's maybe just let's start there. I don't know how you want to start, but good yeah, luck there. No, I appreciate the, the question. Like I remember when I became a new Christian, this was one of the things that troubled me the most, like just trying to get my head around the idea that people that I know and people that I love could spend an eternity in a place called hell. And it troubled me deeply. It had sleepless nights in prayer. It would give me tears to weep for the lost and a prayerfulness, hunger to do evangelism, to want to share the gospel. Exactly as you said, that Jesus would be more willing to endure the punishment of hell himself on the cross than anyone would have to and i wanted people to encounter god and find that forgiveness and be changed and enter into god's future world and so it's a massive topic and it's also one that is a huge barrier for a lot of people that aren't christians and so if you go and look at the statistics of seculars who were asked hey what are your big blockers or your belief blockers to hell uh, to belief in god and they'll say hell up there always 20 25 that's one of the biggest questions that they have and so I think it's something that we need to think really carefully about. And so much so that I did my master's thesis exploring different beliefs around hell. And it was interesting for me to, to come up with that people who believe in Jesus and who would call themselves Christians have really historically had one of three views. By far the most dominant perspective around hell or final judgment. What happens to people after the general resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and then what? What happens to the lost? those who haven't trusted in Jesus. The biggest group would be called uh, those who believe in eternal conscious punishment or torment or separation. But this view is often termed traditionalism. It's the idea that 
Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Protestant denominations all would have a vast uh, majority of people that would believe in this view. So that would be like if I'm out there preaching my gospel message and I'm like, for those who don't believe, you'll spend eternity separate from God in punishment and torment in hell. That's right. That would be... Yep. Or and you'll I've hear said it in lines times. everywhere. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere, either heaven or hell, which is simplistic, but that's kind of what they okay. mean, that you'll be eternally conscious. You'll know that you're alive, physically speaking, but you'll be separated from God and experiencing some kind of torment. And there are various degrees of ways that that's been understood. Some okay. think it's literal fire, that you'll be in a lake of lava and that you'll have a body that cannot die and so you'll perpetually be having regenerating skin that's feeling horrible nerve experience of the pain and just screaming out from the pit of hell all the way down to more of a relational view of hell that because of our separation from god and god is life and god is light and god is love that whatever uh, you experience in hell is the absence of that and so it's more of the privation almost like a sun a light a flower without the sun that which is necessary for human flourishing is just removed and so you experience the end result of rejecting god so there's various views but you're conscious and separated that's from god traditional that's traditionalism the other end of the spectrum is, you know, people like Rob Bell raised these sorts of questions with his 2011 book, Love Wins, or more recently, David Bentley Hart, a very famous theologian, brought out um, um, that all shall be saved. This sort of universalist perspective that in the end, God's love or human free will, one of these two things will eventually win out, right? That if you're free and in hell suffering, at some point you're going to say, this is dumb, continuing to rebel against God. I'm just going to turn trust in Jesus and there's this opportunity to be saved post-mortem or after death and, and resurrection and judgment. And so that view, or eventually, you know, God's love is just going to win people over. That is, as you shared, his grace is so deep, the oceans of his love so vast that it'll overwhelm any rebellious sinner. And so there's this idea that eventually whatever hell does, it doesn't punish it purifies. It's almost like a little bit more the Catholic doctrine of purgatory uh, that eventually hell will awaken everyone to their need for a savior and people will be changed to let be me, more like Jesus. Let me Jesus. just ask this. Do you think that's like, <laughs> this is going to be a funny question, but like in your Calvinism point of view, irresistible grace, meaning those who God extends his grace to will not be able to resist it. It's almost like the same thing, but on a different yeah, I mean, in one case, uh, I mean, a Calvinist would have no problem with this kind of mechanism in the sense that, sure, of course, God's grace would eventually overwhelm someone if that's what he willed. Yeah, but right. there would be universalists, some that would say it's because God wills to save everyone, that's how it's going to happen. Or because humans would, in their, if they were really free, would never continue down this dumb path at least some at some point after fifty thousand years of being an addict to sin, you're going to realize this is dumb and sure. like the prodigal son wake up look, I'm in the field with the pigs trying to eat the food that they're eating. This is dumb. I'm going to come to my senses and repent and trust in God. Um, and, uh, you know, how they get there biblically is both by stemming from the idea of God's love for all creation, for God so loved the world. He desires that all shall be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires that none would be lost, but that all would come to repentance. Those sorts of universal salvific passages or the idea that um, in the end, God will become all in all or that he's reconciling all things to himself. And so it's this scope that surely God as an ultimate creator will not lose anything within his creation. And so it's more right. theologically driven from these two poles of the pole of God's love and goodness universally as well as these passages that promise that in the end everything will be reconciled or, or universal recon reconciliation is it is that a new newer thing or has it been no, around I for mean, this generations? is a doctrine they 
apocatastasis was the original word that's used for it. It's the summing up of all things. Uh, okay. And so people all the way back to Oregon in the second and third centuries, and um, I mean, the would would hold this view as others. And so it's not a unheard of view within Christian history. It's certainly a minority perspective okay. within early church and, and all throughout Christian history. It would be considered by most within particularly the evangelical world to be Heretical. They would look sure. back to one of the councils in 583 AD and would say, well, this was explicitly condemned. These teachings of Oregon were explicitly condemned as heretical, this idea that all would be saved because it seems to go against the plain teaching of Scripture that there will be some who will be saved and others who will be who will face eternal punishment from which there is no coming back. The border is fixed, it's set. Um, and so there's certainly that sort of it, tension for a lot of evangelicals around this word universalism. It, it sounds super 2020 to me, like a super, like, dare I say, liberalism point of view of like love is love and like, that's why I asked, is it, but it's interesting to know it's been around for a long time. Yeah, and in, a, in the end it just questions what do we think about evil? Yeah. You know, is evil something that will be ultimately overcome by God? Does God force love upon people? Will his wooing be effective on all people? Or are there some, including angels and humans, who have so set themselves against God and continue down a pattern of evil that they have become evil itself and that that is just set then for, for their nature? That's really what uh, what these are sort of raising questions around as well. But for many people, their, their heart, and certainly my heart, is to say, well, what does the Bible say? Mm. If the Bible is meant to be God's word, if it's God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, well, I want to be careful that what I believe really leaps out of the whole Old and New Testaments, that it is the, the pattern of Scripture that's revealed to us. And so there's these two views, traditionalism and universalism, at either end of the spectrum. And there isn't a third view, which is another minority position, but it usually goes by the name of conditionalism or conditional immortality or annihilationism. And it's been held by various early church thinkers. It's been held by various sectarian groups within church history, but it's certainly been a minority position up until more recently where there's been a larger number of higher profile evangelical theologians that have gone down this route. People like John Stott or John Wenham or Michael Green or John Stackhouse. Uh, and in this view, the idea is that immortality or the ability to live forever is actually a gift of the gospel, that we as human beings only are granted conditional immortality on whether or not we receive Jesus, whether we accept his sacrifice on our behalf, whether or not we get the gift of eternal life. And so conditional immortality would argue that the wages of sin is not suffering, it's not eternal conscious torment, but the wages of sin is death. A, as Jesus would say in Matthew 10, 28, fear not him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who, having killed the body, can, can destroy both body and soul in hell. And it's this idea that being resurrected from the dead, facing final judgment, those who don't trust in Jesus, who face death standing on their own record at the judgment, are going to be thrown into hell consciously where they are exposed to the wrath of God against sin. And that will result in their irrevocable death. Only this time it's a death of body and soul, of the entire conscious nature of the person. And so that picture would say that the eternal punishment is death itself, not ongoing or conscious torment or punishment so ultimately that eternal life is a gift from god in the gospel yeah so it contrasts life him, and death yeah if you reject god in this in this point of thinking then you don't get eternal life even if it's bad eternal life yeah, yeah. and it's really interesting to look at what these three views share in common and where they're different so yeah. both the traditional and the conditionalist views would say that hell is 
punitive, that it's punishment for evil, that it's retributive, that it's people getting what they deserve or God visiting wrath. Whereas those who would hold the universalist perspective would say it is rehabilitative, that its goal is more to uh, have a remedial effect on the sinner's heart so that you're opened up and changed to be ready to receive God or enter into eternal life. So there's a difference in the purpose of hell. There's also a difference in the finality of hell. So both traditionalists and conditionalists would say that hell is eternal, that it's final in its judicial sentence, that you don't come back from it. Whereas again, right, the right. universalist perspective would say you go to hell for a time, but then you're rescued out of it, that hell is plundered and ultimately emptied. Um, but where the, let's say, um, universalist and uh, conditionalist would agree is that hell is not eternal in conscious experience. <laughs> you know, so the conditionalist would say you go to hell, you experience it as weeping and gnashing of teeth, of separation from God, of some kind of death penalty, like what Jesus endured on the cross. Mm -hmm. He suffered on the cross, but it resulted in his death. The penalty was death. The punishment was death. But that's the similar as the universal picture. You're not suffering for all eternity. Eventually, the conscious nature of hell ends. And so the question is, does hell exist for all eternity? Or does the source of hell's fire, is that eternal, the eternal nature of God dealing with evil? And so there's just these similarities mm. and differences between the way in which they're understood. And when it comes to what is hell proper, what is it like? There is no agreement, even okay. amongst traditional traditionalist believers. As I said before, some think that hell is literally a place, subterranean part of the new creation. Others think that it is a psychological state of being. Others think that it's a relational state of being. Uh, and so what hell is like exactly is something that is a question where God hasn't given us the details. And I don't think he gives the, the details in the same way he doesn't give us the details about the new creation, precisely because you shouldn't be making your decision on whether you want to go to heaven or whether you want to go to hell. The ultimate decision is whether you want it to be with God or not with God. The question is one of to whom do we want to belong? Do we want to be one of God's or do we want to follow the snake in his rebellion? And so that's really the kind of storyline of the marriage. Do you want to get married to Jesus, be part of the bride of Christ, be part of earth's marriage to heaven? Or do you want to be exiled from that future world, either into an eternal conscious place of hell or out of creation altogether, evil snuffed out finally, so that goodness is the only thing Eternal left. life is knowing God. So this is... John 17, verse 3, and this is the passage, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, one of those sort of um, passages where the Apostle John is describing something. And we need to ask the question, is it an equivocal or is it more of a source sort of relationship? And so uh, you come... Um, uh, in a number of places in John's Gospel, and he'll say, and this is the verdict that life has, light has entered the world, but men love darkness because their deeds were evil. These are sort of emphatic, descriptic statements where the Apostle John, both in his Gospel and in the book of Revelation, is helping us get a sense of what something is. Now, when we want to say um, in 1 John 4 that God is love, they're not two equivocal terms. Love is not God, right? The idea of love is not the being of God. What we're saying is love flows from the source that is God, mm. right? And so similarly with John 17, certainly traditionalists would want to say that what we're speaking about here is a spiritual quality of life, and this is eternal life, knowing God. This is what eternal life means, knowing God. What um, uh, conditionalists would want to say in that regard, those who believe um, that death and life are contrasted more in a physical, total, psychological way, 
they would want to say that the source of eternal life, the source of living forever is a knowledge of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so again, it's a source question versus an equivocation. So let me let me ask this question um, so we uh, we'll move on from hell here but let me so traditionalists and conditionalists believe that hell is a place. Yes. Um universalists I I know one of the conversation is is hell even a real place or is it called Gehenna or some like where they were yeah. burning trash over the corner. So this is then where do we get to what do we what do we know about hell? And it's drawn from uh, a number of New Testament texts in the Old Testament it says absolutely nothing about a place called hell, right? You will not find hell rightly translated from the Old Testament. In the the Old Testament, you'll find words for uh, what in Hebrew is sheol or the grave. Um, Sometimes it has more metaphorical kind of treatment of a watery existence or a semi-conscious existence. The only place that has anything to say in the Old Testament about judgment after the resurrection is in Daniel 12 2 where it says that and many who were asleep in the dust of the earth shall rise some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt and so that's the only Old Testament reference you get to anything about existence eternally perhaps or what that kind of means and so that that passage needs to be interpreted there Um, almost all the Old Testament uses judgment in a very this-worldly sense. The wicked will be cut off, they will be no more, they will be blown away like chaff, that sort of a thing. In the New Testament, we have a number of words that are translated uh, often poorly, particularly in the King James Version. They were all translated as hell, which was very unhelpful because in uh, in the original Greek, they are distinguished both by words and by concepts. So um, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament translates the Hebrew Sheol as the Greek Hades. And Hades in the kind of uh, Greco-Roman world at the time was really one of two things. It was either the embodiment of the underworld, which is the Greek god Hades, or it was exactly this. It was the world of the dead, the underworld. And so often in many different parables, myths or stories, it was divided into places where some were experiencing reward and others were experiencing cursing or torment or something like this. And this is similar to Jesus' story in Matthew chapter, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31 with um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus or the example story that's there. But um, So you've got Hades, which describes what happens after you die. But then you've also got Jesus talking about what happens after our resurrection and then final judgment, which is always explicitly a word he used, Gehenna. And it's only used by Jesus and then once in the, uh, James's letter. And here, Gehenna literally means, um, uh, is a sort of shorthand Greek version of um, Gehinnom, or Gehinnom, which is the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom in the Old Testament. Uh, and were you to track through, say, Jeremiah's prophecies about the Valley of the Sons, this is where heinous sacrifices were done to the pagan god Moloch, and so much so that it was a cursed place. God cursed it and said that nothing fruitful will happen here. This place is not fitting for the worship of God because it's been defiled by this pagan worship. And so when Jesus uses this, it's literally a place to the southwestern uh, valley, to the southwest of Jerusalem. I've stood in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. I've been to hell, you might say. (laughs) But Jesus is trying to help us get a sense that this is what hell is like. It's a place where that typifies the end result of evil. It's a place ultimately of, of cursing. And there are a lot of myths that have grown up around it. There was a rabbi in the 12th century that talked about it becoming a, a, uh, 
rubbish heap of uh, where Jerusalem would constantly burn all of the offering and rubbish. And so it was a place where fire was perpetually burning and where worms and maggots were feasting. That's just not the case. At least there's no reference before that. So if you're listening to this and you're a preacher who loves preaching on hell, uh, stop using that one because there's not a lot of historical kudos to it. But um, (laughs) for the most part, what we understand about Gehenna is it's just not uh, part of God's future promised world. And it contrasts even in the book of Revelation versus uh, chapters 21 and 22, the people who are in the city versus those who are stuck outside the city in out of darkness, who are in this valley, who have experienced the cursing, they will never enter into that kind of a city and the life and love and light that's represented there. So there's that word. You've got Tartarus, which is used where the fallen angels were locked up uh, out of darkness, this kind of idea. And so there's various different words that go into forming it. Basically, all we have is metaphors. You know, okay. Where well, you've got the lake of fire in Revelation, then out of darkness in Second Peter, you're like, uh, how are we meant to fit these things sort of together? You've got Jude 7, which says that... Um, that Sodom and Gomorrah underwent a punishment of eternal fire, serving as an example to us what that will look like. So you're saying, well, they were wiped out by fire from heaven. Is How is that eternal fire? It's not going today. You go out to the plains of Shinar. It's not going today. Mm-hmm. But the effect and the source of it have an ongoing impact. Never were they rebuilt. And so there's all these different images and metaphors that are there. It's not trying to give us specific details on what hell is like, but helping us get a sense of, It's where the judgment of God happens. It's a place that's outside of the city of God, of the covenant of God. It's not part of the promised land. It's a place of cursing. And these are meant to help inform what we think about uh, hell. Great. um, You you mentioned uh, King James Version, and I just thought it would be fun to ask your favorite Bible translation. Um, Because when we're in the jungle of Africa, we're up there and missionaries have gone there and they've taught them, you know, guys preach sermons on the King James Version is the only accurate version of the Bible. And if you're reading any other Bible, you need to repent because it's not the real word of God, which is funny. So yeah, just just fun. Like, what, What's your favorite translation? In- yeah, and uh, I mean, there's a huge history to this. And it's understanding that the texts that we read today come from different families of texts that were preserved. And the Textus Receptus on which... The King James Version is modeled is different to the sort of USB version that we would use in most of the other modern translations, which draws in a different family and a greater wealth of New Testament manuscripts that we now have available to us to come at using a process called textual criticism, comparing, contrasting all the different families of text back through their timelines to see where changes have happened, small spelling changes or loss of words or a movement around of grammar and uh, try and get back to 99.97% sure of what was the original New Testament. And so uh, I just think it's an unfortunate uh, misstep by those who were the King James only family. Um, But as to Bible translation, what I love about God is he wants the truth to be heard to our own language. Remember the one Corinthians chapter 9, to the Greek, I became a Greek, to the Jew, I became as a Jew, to the slave, a slave, to the free, the free, to the weak, the strong, all of this. And with God's word, it's always been the same, that the word of God was first spoken in creation, that creation itself are the words of God made manifest physically, matter, energy, in motion. You and I are long words, our DNA spells out three billion base pairs of letters that are a coded word of Joel Ramsey and Dan Patterson, right? So God is speaking in creation in a discernible way, such that people are without excuse, Romans one twenty would say. But God has spoken to people in their own language. I'm so thankful that God condescends to our languages and our idioms so that we can 
make sense of who he is and what he's ultimately like. And so I love that from the beginning, it's never been precious about it has to be Hebrew and stay in Hebrew and read in Hebrew. The word of God has constantly been translated first from Hebrew to Greek in the Septuagint and from there into Syriac and Latin and Coptic and Arabic and similar with the New Testament. So uh, that we have so many translations today is because God wants us to be able to make sense of his word. And translations set out to to do different things. You've got the sort of uh, uh, more what we would call paraphrase versions, your message versions and stuff like this, where it's taking the thoughts and it's helping represent them in the everyday idiom of a modern culture and a modern language. And so it's super readable, really helpful. Then you've got your much more word-for-word translations, which is trying to help give an English equivalent to a Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word, which for the most part, there just isn't. Mm -hmm. And this is the challenge. Even if you want a word-for-word translation, every time language is more of an art than it is a science. And everyone who speaks French or Spanish will know the frustration of trying to speak in English because the heart and the beauty and the emotion of so many words is just not visited in our language in the same way or you need many words to convey it. It's like, oh, what's the word? You know, you can't get there. So for me personally, I have kind of grown up on the NIV version. Um, Ever since I came to Christ, that's been the one I've tried to commit to memory. Uh, Sometimes I preach from ESV, which is a little bit more trying to get to the word for word. So when you're doing more in-depth Bible study, um, the NRSV or the uh, ESV is really, really helpful for getting at that. But for the most part, a mixture of more thought for thought, not paraphrase, not word for word, more thought for thought. I think the NIV is brilliant at helping it be readable while still being reasonably theologically faithful. That's awesome. I also like the NIV and I currently spend most of my time in the ESV. Cool. Although I feel most comfortable in the NKJV, but I think that's because it was my first Bible. (laughs) Totally. And I think we do just have that almost mother tongue experience of the Bible and it's hard to move past that. The one you quote. Exactly. So if you don't have a good reason to step beyond it, then give your memory a break and stick to one for memory reasons. Okay. So now let's quickly talk about um, cessationism. So I'm I'm a huge lover of the miraculous, the power of God, um, the gifts of the Spirit. I um, had an encounter with God several years ago where before that, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've grown up in Pentecostal charismatic church my whole life. But if you'd asked me, my idea would have been someone said, uh, you know, miracles, I'd be like, yeah, cool, God heals people through doctors today. That's super awesome. Um, and through a, a, a varying different moments in my life, an encounter with God I had, I started to want to pray for the sick and got a passion for it. And since then, I mean, I've... I've seen very, you know, I, I don't exaggerate to say thousands mm. of people testify of miracles, of healings, um, you know, really absurd things that are hard for even the brain to like. I actually remember I was probably, uh, I'd have to make words uh, numbers up here, but I've seen roughly 500 people testify of God saying, oh, I healed them. And I remember sitting in my my room with God saying, God, is this really happening? And I was like, you know, either... Either all these people are like have compulsive lying issues, or you're really healing people. Mm. And so I I began to really just go after this. One of the things that mark my ministry. It's one of the things I love to do. Um, all that to say, there is a doctrine out there that speaks of the cessation of miracles, cessationism, or that uh, you, again you'll probably better speak into it. But they speak about how when the perfect comes, um, these things will cease, and they. They, pre- they would suggest the perfect is the word of God. You know, you can speak. And I just want to know your thoughts on cessationism, yeah. gifts of the spirit, because I believe they're very alive, but they're a group of people that would think I'm a heretic for saying so. Yeah, and uh, as with all of these questions where 
there are Christians who love Jesus, love the Bible, and want to believe in and follow him faithfully. Christians have differences. And so many of the people that I really respect, many of the Bible teachers that I look up to, some of them hold this view of cessationism. It's not my view, but the argument goes from a number of different lines. There's one which is the historical line, which says, in the time of the apostles, we see a huge number of very obvious miracles. I mean, they're sending handkerchiefs that Peter has touched and it's just clearing out little hospitals or you know, the shadows falling upon people or people are touching Jesus' hem. Uh, and it just seems to be hugely miraculous. You know, Eutychus falls out a window in Acts chapter 20, dies, three-story fall. Paul goes down, wakes him up and says, let's keep preaching. You know, like this seems stuff. to be, yeah, really, really overt. And, and people look and then say, well, but what happened? Because from the second generation onwards, from your Polycarps and your Ignatius and your, you're just not necessarily seeing this anywhere right. represented, at least to that kind of degree, historically gifts speaking. of the Spirit, historically speaking. So they wonder, is this a historical argument that perhaps something shifted between the apostolic age and then this? A second would be more of the uh, more theological reasoning. And so from the New Testament, they would make arguments like in 1 Corinthians 13, which you said before, that there are these gifts of the Spirit, of God revealing himself in the gathered church, whether it's by words of knowledge or tongues that are then interpreted these seems to be of God giving revelation to the church, but we're waiting until we can see God clearly. And love is meant to shape how we use these gifts and all of it must be done so that the body is built up and done in an orderly way. But ultimately, when the perfect arrives, tongues will cease and prophecies will cease. And so the question is, what is it that's meant to be arriving? And they'll go to passages like Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about the church being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And they'll say that what marked out a prophet in the Old Testament was miracles. How do we know Elijah was a prophet and you should trust what he says? How do we know Elisha was a prophet and you should trust what he says? Well, they had a ministry of miracles and helped mark them out as being from God. And that was the sign that they were a true prophet. You should trust that that was divine revelation. And same with the apostles, that they had a mission that they were meant to pass on the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the kingdom of his death and resurrection, and mark out then a New Testament canon. And then with their passing, now we have this revelation. God doesn't need to be speaking in that authoritative way anymore. And so the miracles are linked to these signs of the proper apostles and so with the death of the apostles with the finish then of the canon of scripture there's no longer any need for this testifying to their authority by a ministry of miracles and then there would be this idea of the problem then uh, they would say of still having these what they would call perhaps more revelatory gifts of miracles of um, of tongues and interpretations of prophecy where they would say is the canon still open right um, we've got 66 books of the Bible, 39 old, 27 new. Are we effectively saying that if God is speaking by prophecy, that we should be adding to the Bible, right? Mm. That the canon is still open, and therefore there is new authoritative stuff that's coming that you should also live your life by. And so it's a question of, well, if God is speaking, aren't I meant to listen to what God says? And are we imbuing other people with that kind of authority? And so it's a question of, uh, are we meant to see all prophecy as being authoritative scripture or is have being on the same level as scripture and so they would be kind of three broad arguments oh, wow. as to why someone would go down the cessationist line um the continuationists though would respond uh to all three of these by saying that perhaps there was just uh um, people forgetting effectively what we're invited into by being filled with God's presence, that we are meant to bind things on earth and loose things from heaven, that we are meant to be praying for the sick, that James 
commands us to pray for the sick, to gather the elders, to get the anointed, people to confess their sins, that they may be healed, that this was a regular part of the New Testament. And then it existed right alongside medical health advice. You should maybe take a little wine with your water mm. so that it's good for your stomach. you know. And Or physical training is of some value, but godliness holds value in all things. So it's not devoid of good, wise use of medical knowledge. It just the supernatural and the supernatural provision or providence of God through human thinking, rationality, genius, study, these walked hand in hand. So they would want to say that. They would want to say that um, that Scripture itself is not the perfect. The perfect is Jesus. Yeah. That the work of the Spirit here in pointing to Jesus is not something that is finished, but yet miracles are signs that point beyond ourselves to something bigger, namely God and His Christ, Jesus. And so this is something that we're meant to continue to doing in the legacy of our Master to do greater things than even He did mm-hmm. and to continue on that pattern of, of miracles. That It says nowhere in the New Testament that any of the, li- the list of spiritual gifts are going to come to an end. And so if tongues and prophecy are right alongside mentioned gifts of mercy and acts of service then if one's not stopping, why is the other stopping? That all of these things should be done in such a way that the body be built up. And if we're not doing some of these, if these gifts are being neglected, then not only are we neglecting the spirit, we're actually weakening the body of it and its witness as well. And then the, the other one would just be that the kind of prophecy and speaking that God does is meant to be normalized or tested against Scripture. That the reason why we have Scripture, the canon, is exactly that. It is a measure from which we can evaluate the quality of any other revelation. That right alongside 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, let one prophet speak and then the others weigh what has been said. What they're doing there is not saying, you said it, therefore God said it. It's like, you thought you've heard from God. Let us now test this against what we feel like the Spirit's speaking to us, against what He's revealed as His authoritative teaching in the Scriptures. Is this something that seems to reveal the heart of God for our specific moment in time? Yeah, it does seem to be, all right, well, let's cautiously walk in this. So Scripture is used as the anchor, the touchstone against which everything else is ultimately tested. And so that's what helps us discern whether or not we should be listening to specific prophecies or tongues and doing it in a way that builds up the body and so i think it's you know you can see there's a for and against there for a lot of people though the experience of god is kind of the deciding feature it's like well i've i've seen god work in this way and even cessationists wouldn't say that god doesn't do miracles or that god doesn't necessarily speak they would just say that the gifts are not held by a person it's like hey you're the healer guy or hey you're the preacher guy it just happens sovereignly it just happens sovereignly as we pray god can interact um can work miraculously and even that you know i think is an interesting way to understand what are the gifts of the spirit is one person given a particular gift or are you given the spirit by which he works in whatever way he wants at that time through you and it may be through a gift of healing at this point it may be through a gift of leadership at that point but if you're the only christian in a situation where someone needs to be healed and God wants to give a sign in this way to point towards Jesus and the gospel, he's not going to wait until you call up a healing evangelist to call, <laughs> come over from some other place. He's going to allow you to work in that way. It's the Spirit who gives these gifts as the Lord directs and, and desires. And so just some way to kind of process that. There's a great book out there if you're interested, just called Four Views on Gifts of the Spirit Today, where you can read the back and forth on the biblical, the historical, and the theological arguments, which I just think is helpful for people that are trying to get their head around it. Amazing. Hey, look, we are really almost out of time. So, And I, I, I would maybe we have to organize another time to talk more about miracles because I, I love them and I think having someone like yourself with insight and different point of view and certain things would be a really cool conversation. 
But I, before we finish, I do want to talk about you have a book coming out. Um, yeah. In fact, it's already written or and, and it's coming out. So maybe just share with us a little bit about your book. And then for those listening who want to get more in touch with your ministry and what you're doing, how they can great. you find you, yeah. etc. Well, it's my it's my friend's fault. So I've got a great friend, uh, Rian Ru, who prompted me a couple of years ago. He's like, mate, I've, we've been in ministry for so long. Everyone keeps asking me, what book should I give my friend? And I just don't know what to give them because there's nothing that does what we feel like we want a book to do for someone who's exploring faith or still, still has questions or doesn't understand the Christian story. And so we've written a book. It's working title currently is Questioning Christianity. But the goal is it's three parts. The first part just tells the Christian story. It sums up the unified story of the Bible in six major scenes that were created for good in the garden, that we've had the fall, we've become damaged by evil, that their God chooses a family, Israel chosen to bless, even though they fail Ultimately, through them comes Jesus who redeems us in love. And then he sets up the church to be sent together to heal. And ultimately, Jesus returns to set everything right in this new creation. Uh, and so it just helps explain all of these big things. And the goal was to answer life's deepest questions through the lens of that story. Who are we? Why are we here? How should we live? And where are we going? All the identity and meaning and purpose questions are wrapped up in this story. So I hope that'll be tremendously helpful for people. The second part of the book explains, all right, let's say you came to believe this, right? What does it mean to step into that story and to receive it as your own? How do you become a Christian in the modern world? What does that even mean? And so we lay out practically just a bunch of ways that you can get connected in a relationship with God, with a new community in a church, with your new identity in Christ, with a new purpose for your existence, as well as then how to navigate all of those sort of bigger moral questions, exploring how do I now follow Jesus and what does it mean to image God rightly and who he is? And the third part of the book then is for all the people who say, but what about? It's questioning the story. And we pick up on how do we know that God is good? Was the snake right in Genesis to question God's goodness? We pick up on hell and suffering and why isn't God more obvious? And questions about science or why do we trust the Bible? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead and miracles? All of that's kind of in there for those who have bigger questions that keep them from being able to step into the story yet. So those three parts, what is the story? How do I step into it? And I've got questions. That's kind of what the book is all about. Amazing. And so if people want to get in touch or connect with your ministry, see where you're speaking, get yeah. your book letter, how do we? How do they contact you? How do they totally. find you? Well, I'm in a little bit of a world between worlds at the moment. So still TBA as to what's kind of emerging next. My big heart is just to keep making Jesus public and helping to answer people's questions. And so I speak in universities and schools and churches, and conferences and business networks. Our best way to follow what's going on is really just to connect on social media. I've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of thing, and just keep updates kind of flowing through there if you want to stay connected. Would love just to hear uh, anything that's helpful to you. But there's a ton of content out there, which I'm currently collating on our own page, Questioning Christianity. And so very, very soon. That's your be up website. And yeah. Questioningchristianity.com. Yeah. Yeah. Coming and soon. Coming soon. So as soon as we have that up and live, uh, you'll make sure to see links all over social media. Amazing. Well, guys, make sure when that does follow Dan, get his book. I am definitely will be buying it myself and uh, dissecting it. And I just want to say thanks, Dan. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to come hang with us been super insightful i really appreciate it yeah we'll love you joel it's been a joy to get to come and hang out thanks bud talk soon